0: Welcome to the Bethany Covenant Church Sermon Podcast. We are a multi-generational community in Berlin, Connecticut. Our services are held Sundays at 9.30 a.m., and you can find out more about us at www.bethanycovenant.org. He was walking along. He saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples, asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins? or his parents' sins. If you don't know me, my name is Chris. I am the pastor of worship here, which is a fancy title that is by way of saying my job is other duties as assigned. (laughs) And I used to live in the Midwest. And when I lived there, I spent a ton of time on routes 80 and 70 and several other major highways. And along those major highways, you'll see this sign that basically says, move your broken down cars off the highway. Now, that seems like a pretty obvious thing, right? Um, Don't leave your vehicle in the middle of, you know, high-speed traffic. Uh, On its own, it seems to be a completely unnecessary piece of signage. Now, I always assumed that that should be common sense until they realized that somebody chose to spend a whole bunch of money on a lot of these signs, which means that there's a reason for them to be there which means that people were choosing not to move their broken-down cars off to the side of the highway in high-speed traffic. Apparently, common sense is not as common as I thought. But you can also learn a lot about a place by looking at its signage. Now, likewise, we can learn something from this seemingly random question that is coming from the disciples here in John chapter 9. Jesus sees a guy who's been born blind, and the man, so the man has what's called congenital blindness. And upon Jesus noticing this man, the disciples now also notice him and ask why he was born blind. Was it his sin or was it his parents' sin? Now, if you think about that, that's a pretty leading question. It doesn't really leave a lot of room for, you know, other possibilities. I guess it's just in their mind it was one of these two. So we learn something about the assumptions and the practices of the disciples in this moment. It was a popular assumption then, as it is in many places now. Something kind of akin to our version of karma, right? What goes around comes around. Clearly, if this man was suffering, he must be suffering because he or maybe his parents did something wrong. Which is why it sort of makes sense that the disciples only noticed this guy. They only saw him after Jesus saw him. Until that moment, he'd simply been part of the scenery to be ignored. And so as he always does, Jesus has an answer for him. It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We, meaning Jesus and the blind man, must carry, quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming and no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. So no, it's not a sin issue at all. You are asking the wrong question, disciples. But to answer the obvious question, no, God did not cause this. The issue is simple. This is only a problem to you, Disciples. To God, this is an opportunity. Jesus says, this man and I have work. We have an appointment so that you can see the power of God. Jesus is hinting he's not always going to be around. It's not the first time he's hinted this. So now while he is here, he and this blind man have work to do together that will display the power of God. Another way that Jesus will bring light into the darkness. It's a theme that we hear throughout the book of John over and over and over again. In fact, John begins the book by saying, what came into being through the word was life, and the life was the light for all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. So the word of God, what John calls the Logos, came to bring light into a dark world. And then in chapter 8, a little bit before this, uh, from our passage, Jesus declares, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me won't walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now this comment of his happens in this conversation, well, it's not a conversation. It's really more of a really long, heated argument that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. But Jesus isn't really done with the blind man yet. Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. It's so funny to me that Jesus never actually says anything to the blind man. He doesn't ask him if he wants to be healed. He doesn't tell him anything he's just it's actually kind of presumptuous if you think about it the man is almost a prop in this scene he's just sitting there and he's looking back and forth between these people who are kind of standing over him talking about him who are trying to figure out why are you the way you are but not you why is this thing the way he is but then jesus spits in the dirt makes some mud, and then he spreads the mud on the man's eyes, and he sends him to go wash his eyes. And without a word, the man just does it. I want to lay out just a little bit of context for us right now, because to understand what's going on here, what's happening here, we need to zoom out just a little bit. The book of John is absolutely laden with symbolism that relates to the whole rest of the book. All the threads tie together. In almost every chapter, for example, we get a both veiled or maybe not so veiled reference to creation. The book starts out with that, if you remember from last week. Now this passage, the story of the blind man in chapter 9, takes place following the events of chapter 7 and 8. Yes, I too can count. In those chapters, we find that Jesus has gone to the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. It's a yearly feast, a celebration that's meant to remind the Hebrew people of their time in the wilderness during the Exodus out of Egypt. Remember, Charlton Heston, Ten Commandments, that thing. People are encouraged to pilgrimage to Jerusalem together, which, by the way, is why we have the Psalms of Ascent. They were meant to be sung on the journey to Jerusalem. Now, not everybody could make it, but many did. So in the centerpiece of this festival, which lasts a little over a week, families would build these sort of ramshackle, tent-like structures, and then were encouraged to spend as much of their time in those structures as possible. At the very least, they were included to make sure you eat all of your meals in that shelter. It would remind them of their journey in the wilderness, these sort of temporary structures and then how God provided for them in the wilderness with manna and quail. Every morning of the festival, a priest would go down to one of the only sources of living water, which is moving, clear, potable water in Jerusalem, which was the cistern that had been dug out of uh, the ground to hold the runoff of a natural spring that was nearby during one of the sieges of Jerusalem. Now, this was considered a sacred place. It was a source of life for Jerusalem throughout the city's long history. And the priest would take this gold pitcher from the font, and he'd bring it back to the temple, chanting, with joy you will drink deeply from the fountain of salvation, which is a verse from chapter 12 of the book of Isaiah, which we heard read earlier. The ritual was called the drawing out of water to symbolize the pouring out of the Ruach HaKodesh meaning the Holy Spirit, the breath of God, the only true source of light sent from above. And this place was called the Pool of Siloam. In the beginning, the scriptures say, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of chaos, and then from that chaos created order. And then on the sixth day, God scooped his hands into the dust of the earth, and it formed into Adama, humanity, And then breathed life into his mouth. So Jesus puts mud that he made himself out of his own spit and out of dust from the earth on this man's eyes. Then he sends him to this pool that means sent from above, a symbol of God's life given by the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that hovered over the waters of chaos and creation to wash the mud from his eyes to be healed. You might say, the man was recreated. So first we have the water ritual. Second, we have a fire ritual. And you were wondering about the giant torches. On the eighth day of the festival, four large lamps are lit in one of the temple courts. They're so bright that it was said that they penetrated every courtyard in Jerusalem. Men would then dance with torches in that light to music that's played by many skilled musicians playing harps and lyres and drums and trumpets. And they would do this all night long until the sun rose and the light of the world began a new day, at which point the torches were extinguished because who can compete with the sun? Now, this was a symbol first of the Shekinah glory, which is the visible presence of God that filled the very first temple that was built by King Solomon. But it was also meant to remind the people that God was coming to bring light into the lives of all nations who were spiritually dwelling in darkness, who needed a great light, a light in the darkness for the whole world. And it's at this moment near the end of the festival, when the torches were extinguished, that Jesus would have said, I am the light of the world. But this is only the start of all of this, because the man who was born blind now returns home. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. It's funny how nobody ever talks to this guy? The neighbors just argue like he's not there, just like the disciples said. And the whole time he's standing there going, no, oh, hey, it's me. They asked, who healed you? What happened? Okay, finally, we're now talking to him. He told them, the man they call Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and I washed and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. Useful information. I don't know, he replied. Oh, well. <laughs> then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus made the mud and smeared it on the man's eyes on a Sabbath day. Okay. So in addition to being both a symbolic and a very real source of life in Jerusalem, the Pool of Siloam was also something called a mikvah which is to say it's a place of ritual cleansing. If you were healed of an infirmity, which is something that would have made you permanently unclean, it would have made you an outcast from your people, you must first go and ritually cleanse in one of these mikvahs. And then you present yourself to the religious leaders, in this case, the Pharisees, so that you could then be restored to your community. You would no longer be considered unclean. Now, I want to make sure I point this out before we get too far into this. The man's community, no matter their disagreement about who he is or where he's come from or whatever, they rally around him and they bring him to get this done. They are glad to have him back. But here's the thing about the Pharisees. They don't like it when their rules are broken. Now, these are the super pious people of their day. And they took very seriously all of the teachings of the Hebrew Scriptures to the point that they worked out this whole second set of rules around every word in the Torah to make sure that they didn't accidentally make themselves unclean and in so doing bring down God's wrath against the people of Israel again. Remember that whole exile to Babylon thing? It was called the fence around the law. It's the set of rules to avoid even a hint of failing and falling into darkness out of disobedience. And one of those rules was that work of any kind on the Sabbath, the day of rest, things like cooking, farming, cleaning, yes, even healing, was against the law. Now, the man born blind had gone to the mikvah. He'd done the ritual cleansing, which means he's followed their rules. But Jesus didn't. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put mud over my eyes, and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Others said, but how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was deep division of opinion among them. Don't you love how something as miraculous and visible as a public healing can cause such controversy and division? Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called his parents. They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him, he is old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had denounced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he is old enough, ask him. Thanks for throwing me under the bus, mom and dad. (laughs) So one thing that's been happening in my house for quite some time now is that one of my kids will appear and ask for something like, say, TV or a snack. And we'll say, no, it's time for dinner soon. So they disappear. And about five seconds later, they'll show up again saying, can I have TV or can I have a snack? And we'll say no. And then they'll ask again with escalating levels of frustration. And it usually ends up in someone being sent to their room. And since I am the adult in this situation, when I come back from my room... Dinner is usually ready, and the point is moot anyway. (laughs) Have you ever been confronted with information that you just don't like? I think often enough we decide that surely if we just ask again, we'll get a different response, a better response, the one that we want this time, right? But that's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I promise we are always equipped to get the results that we are currently getting. Now, this poor guy was born blind and outcast, and then in this miracle, this guy he's never met comes along and heals him in the best possible way. And suddenly, he's getting interrogated by these religious leaders because apparently it wasn't done on the right day. And what really pours salt on the wound is that every time they don't get the answer that they want, the Pharisees make him tell the story again. They ask him once, but he gives the wrong answer. So they ask his parents, who the text says are afraid of them, rightfully so, and point the Pharisees back to the source that they're trying to avoid, the one that's not giving the right answer. So, for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. (laughs) Huh? I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. He takes the story back to its most basic form. All I know, I was blind, now I'm not. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, this man exclaimed, I told you once, didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? <laughs> this guy is great. He sees what's going on. Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know how God speaks to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Well, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed, me. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, and note the not-so-veiled reference to creation again, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. So when this man who used to be blind, who, by the way, seems inexplicably very articulate, when he outmaneuvers them with their own theology, the Pharisees reply with with what's called an ad hominem attack. Instead of responding to his argument with a theological answer, they attack his character. They attack uh, him by saying, you have been a sinner from birth, and it's a way for them to discredit him. It's an emotional response. See, it's hard to be empathetic when you've already made up your mind about someone. Isn't it interesting that we're back to where we started? The Pharisees have now essentially outed their hand. They too believe that this man's infirmity is a result of some sort of divine punishment for his sin. Just like the disciples had until Jesus corrected them but then this guy who's been ignored by everyone from the beginning of the story hes culturally invisible. Suddenly and very poignantly sums up the problem of the theology with those in power. It turns out that the man born blind was not just a prop for Jesus to heal as a visible example because what he's saying kind of makes sense, right? Ironically, It's the formerly blind man who has the clearest vision of who God is and what God is about. When Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and asked, do you believe in the son of man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. Well, you've seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Literally, he prostrated himself before Jesus on the ground, which in ancient Israel is a form of worship. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind, and to show those who think they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby, they're always around. They heard him, and they asked, are you saying we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. The eyes are interesting things. This is actually a picture of my left eye, the inside of my left eye. It was taken with a retinal scanner about six months ago. It's a pretty healthy-looking eye as far as these things go. When I was in seminary at Asbury, seminary, yes, that Asbury, I worked in an optometrist's office as a retinal tech. So I was the guy who would take you back and I'd run the pre-testing on you. So like the letter chart, and you'd put the paddle over one eye and then put the paddle over the other eye. Uh, I'd have you, uh, I'd take some of these retinal scans using a retinal scanner. I'd have you read that little book of uh, color blindness tests. And of course, everybody's favorite, the little puff of air test, right? To get your eye pressure, that was always fun. I liked that one. There's a lot of ways that we can stop seeing properly, the most common of which, of course, is refractive error and astigmatism, which basically means you don't have the ability to focus properly, or your eye is not quite the right shape. So we get glasses or contacts. Then there's, like, macular degeneration, which can lead to a loss of sight when the macula starts to fall apart. And your retina can start to detach, and you won't be able to see. Around the age of 40, most of us start to develop something called presbyopia, which means that your eye muscles have a harder time focusing, especially to things close up, and so you start to need reading glasses. Some of you can attest to the challenge of cataracts, which are sort of a clouding that happens in your eye lenses. We can go blind in one eye, and we can lose our depth perception. And we can lose, uh, go blind in two eyes, which of course means we can't see anything. And third-eye blind is a 90s rock band. Sorry, I just had to throw that out there. (laughs) But the thing is, all of those conditions are imposed upon us. The man who was born blind, he didn't have a choice. He was born that way. Until Jesus got to him, his eyes just didn't work. But the Pharisees... As G.K. Chesterton said, it isn't that they can't see the solution, it's that they can't see the problem. Jesus' reply to them is scathing. I am not actually saying that you're blind. I'm saying that you are covering your eyes on purpose. In spite of the very real evidence standing in front of them, the evidence that is now lecturing them about their own theology, They refuse to see who Jesus is. It doesn't fit their boxes. It doesn't fit their interpretations, the ones that they have always used, the way that they've always done things. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. Therefore, if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light of you is darkness, how terrible that darkness will be. He's not talking about the blind man. Do you realize how hard the Pharisees had to work to cover their eyes? There are so many unnecessary layers in this fence around the law. When we are afraid of someone, we find ways to distance ourselves from them. What the Pharisees believed about God is reflected in their fear that led to creating this fence. It's a a wall. It's boundaries to make sure that they don't get too close. But what the man who was blind believed was reflected in his worship of the Son of Man. See, that statement Jesus made... um, the man who was blind is this reference to another place in the Hebrew Scriptures. Daniel chapter 7. His, Daniel is this prophet. He's having a vision and he says, As I continued to watch this night vision of mine, I suddenly saw one like a son of man coming with the heavenly clouds. He came to the ancient one and was presented before him. Rule, glory, and kingship were given to him. All people's nations and languages will serve him. His rule is an everlasting one. It will never pass away. His kingship is indestructible. This is the Son of Man, who Jesus invites the man who was blind to believe in. A being who comes to rule the earth, to judge the whole earth in fairness and in glory, a man the Pharisees should know because they've known these scriptures by heart. And in this moment, Jesus says, That's me. I'm the Son of Man. I'm standing before you now. I'm the light in the darkness. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. And the son of man prefers the act of creating and healing and restoring whenever and wherever it's needed to following artificial rules meant to fence people in or out. He prefers that to avoiding risk. So who's really seeing in this moment The man who's been born blind, or the Pharisees who claim to see so clearly that they've taken it on themselves to guard everyone else from the error of their ways? What things do we hold on to that we don't even realize are sucking the life out of us as we refuse to interrupt our old ways of thinking? How are we still blind? Or more to the point, in what ways are we refusing to see what God is doing in and among us? How often do we, in moments of fear or shame or anger, make decisions that hurt others as we try to make ourselves feel better about the things that are most comfortable to us? The light of the world came to bring life, and yet we often fight that because we lack the ability to be honest about reality as it truly is, either how the world truly is or how we ourselves truly are. We let our vision get clouded, or we even cover it up because it's too hard. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, we try to hide from God. Sometimes we do that by ignoring it. Sometimes we do that by overbusying ourselves so that we don't have time to listen. Sometimes we do that by simply lashing out when we're presented with uncomfortable truths. But here Jesus shows us that hiding is unnecessary because he already knows what we need healing from the things that are broken inside of us. In fact, we actually start to make it worse again when we fight what God's doing. Where where are we covering our eyes to the light of God's healing power for ourselves, for our neighbors, for our families, and our nations, and our world? Where are we hiding, and how ought we repent of that before God and before others? Are we willing to let God help us see what we may not have noticed before? We can staunchly refuse to let the creator work in us and instead leave bitter and angry and hurt, missing out on the abundant life that Jesus promises, not a chapter later here. Or God can take our brokenness and make it beautiful. And as the light unfolds within us, we come to understand that only by the light of God can we see. Divine Spirit, open our eyes that we may see. Help us to know you better as you come to us and you, you offer healing. Lord, do a whitey work inside of us, in us and through us. that we may see with your sight, hear with your ears, and love with your heart. It's in your name we pray together. Amen.